Welcome to our podcast, Immunization Morning Commute, Vaccine Hesitancy During a Global Pandemic. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck. In this episode, Dr. Robert Gladder and Dr. Eric Choi Pena discuss vaccine hesitancy, which, in 2018, the World Health Organization called one of the top 10 biggest threats to global health. Drs. Gladder and Choi Pena will take a look at what is driving this hesitancy and how it can be combated, especially in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash vaccines too. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Gladder is an assistant professor of emergency medicine in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Lenox Hill Hospital Northwell Health in New York City. Dr. Eric Choi Pena is the director of global health at Northwell Health in New Hyde Park, New York. I am Candace Hoffman, managing editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Gladder will begin our discussion. Welcome to our podcast on vaccine hesitancy. I'm joined today by Dr. Eric Pena. Welcome, Eric. Hey, Robert. Nice to meet you. Thank you for uh, having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad to have you here to discuss our topic of vaccine hesitancy. And it's certainly timely in the middle of the pandemic, but especially so with the availability now of multiple vaccines that are showing efficacy against COVID-19. But the reality is that vaccine hesitancy was here long before COVID. Uh, I mean, that's clear. And we've been battling this for, you know, decades. So with the arrival of the pandemic, you know, here we are. So the question is, what is driving the vaccine hesitancy? The WHO, even in 2018, declared that as one of the top 10 biggest threats to global health. So clearly here we have as, a, as sort of a takeoff, um, and I'll let you, you know, start off in the discussion. What do you think beyond this is you know, driving the hesitancy or really just give me some nuts and bolts. This has been a, a concept that has existed in our society and in global societies for for decades, as you as you put it. Um, you know, we saw this uh, since the first vaccine. You know, we've seen this since smallpox um, and we've seen hesitancy around that. I think what's novel about this discussion is just how quickly we see misinformation able to be propagated and spread in the era of social media and the internet. We're seeing a lot more um, kind of widespread uh, misinformation that is disseminated qu as quickly, if not quicker than, um, than, than the data. And so one of the challenges I think we have is going back many, many years to the smallpox eradication campaign, you know, you can read the journals of the, of the vaccinators as they were reaching the end of that, uh, that campaign in, in Northern India. And there were certainly many families and many populations that had vaccine hesitancy that ne that needed to be overcome. Uh, but I think the the issue that we're now dealing with is that it's no longer as fringe. I think that it, as it was when when information was disseminated in, in a peer reviewed fashion and and over mainstream media. I think we're now seeing uh, misinformation spreading uh, much more quickly, and and uh, and it's got real world ramifications um, that uh, you know we can go into. Absolutely. So this all boils down to trust and, you know, validation. These are key issues in determining how um, we accept, um, you know, the ability or, you know, decision to vaccinate our, ourselves, 
Um, and, and, it, and it clearly has ramifications. So knowing this, the amount of misinformation, disinformation that exists, how can we sort of course correct our society? What are the ways we can really sort of try to approach this in your mind? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great question. You know, one of the things that we have to remember is that two of the most trusted professions still in our society are doctors and nurses. And I think, you know, reaching those practitioners, because there's vaccine hesitancy among, amongst our profession, and, and reaching those practitioners um, is going to be key in, in building that trust and having those difficult conversations with families and with, um, with adults that may not uh, have all the information, but may be nervous, um, especially with the most recent kind of COVID vaccination effort where it feels, at least it's portrayed, that the um, the vaccination, that the, the studies were rushed, that the data safety might have been compromised. And none of that's, of course, true. But there's that perception out there. And I think it's it's kind of highlighted or put under a microscope the uncertainty around vaccines. And, you know, the, the conversations are tough ones. They're not, they're not quick visits. They're not three-minute conversations. A lot of times you have to find out, you know, what is the concern? What are you worried about? And then we can talk and we can have an honest conversation about the existing data. And, you know, I don't, I don't sugarcoat things for patients. I don't, um, I present the data and I like let them make an informed decision. But I find that often the decisions that they're making are based out of fear and a lack of information and, or drawing information from sources that just aren't reliable or credible. And so I think disarming that and giving people real world information um, is the first step. And I think that eliminates a, a good portion of the hesitancy that we're seeing today. Right. And I, I think, I mean, I completely agree. And I think if you tell a person that if I vaccinate you, there's a, you know, a hundred percent chance you won't be hospitalized and you won't die. I think that generally would tell someone that they may want to, you know, get the vaccine. And I think that's the case. The Kaiser Health News had a recent survey about a month ago. And that was one of the things that sort of pushed people a little bit over the precipice to get the vaccine, um, knowing that they wouldn't be hospitalized and they wouldn't die. And so th those are powerful messages, I think, that when you get that um, you know, communicated to you, uh, it can help you know, sort of push you to get the vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, if you remember the time pre-COVID, when only in, in New York State, only the healthcare professionals that didn't receive their, their seasonal flu vaccine were the ones that wore masks in, in the hospital. You know, I, I use that as an opportunity to have conversations. And, and people would say, oh, well, you know, I got the flu shot and then and then I got the flu, um, and right. and you know, and, and flu vaccine. It, that's it's true. It's you know, the protection is is incomplete. It doesn't a hundred percent of the time protect from getting the flu. And on a good year, it gets close to the eighties or ninety percent, and on a bad year, it's it's fifty or sixty percent, and you can still get the flu. But the one thing that I think people overlook is there are very few people dying of flu that are vaccinated, uh, almost zero each year. Um, without special circumstances. And that's a huge deal. And so when you tell patients that, like, look, you may get the flu shot and then get the flu, but, you know, with your COPD and heart failure, you're not going to die in a ventilator from flu. And that's a very big patient-oriented outcome, as we call them. And I think that's, a, that's something that needs to be talked about because it's not just a failure if you get the disease. If it prevents you from going into the hospital or dying from that disease, that's a huge win. So looking at vaccines in general, adult vaccines, we've certainly had some resistance. And some of this, you know, is to be expected. Uh, a lot of adults have asked me, actually some in the emergency department, do I need to get a pneumovax or pneumococcal vaccine uh, or even a zoster vaccine? And so, Eric, I, you know, I always want to recommend this. And I think that people are, you know, always a little hesitant. Like, do I really need it? And I want to get your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I also similarly get questions about this um, in the clinical area. And, and you, know, uh, you know, what I tell people is, you know, vaccines have single-handedly saved more lives in the history of science than antibiotics, um, chemotherapy, and, and many other therapies combined. I mean, you know, it really has the thing that's changed the um, kind of the scope of modern medicine has really been the vaccine. It is the most cost-effective intervention that we can give in science, and it really is where we get the major wins in reductions of disease. Uh, you know, the old adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I mean, that really is true in these vaccines. And so pneumonia is one of the leading causes of death in, in elderly populations in the United States. Zoster is an incredibly morbid disease that causes painful lesions that can last for, for you know, the neuropath neuropathic pain can last for months and months after an infection. The big question I have is if you, if, you know, with, with such little downside to these vaccines, why would you not want it? It's almost um, an act of insanity to not want it. And that's, that's kind of how I talk to patients about it. I said, look, the downsides are pretty low. You know, we're, we're talking about, you know, a few cases per 10 million of side effects. And that's, to me, that's an acceptable risk given the, you know, the real risk of, of complications from those diseases. Absolutely. And I think a lot of the messaging happens in, in uh, physician offices where they try to, you know, encourage the use of the vaccines. Um, to be honest with you, when you do see a case of shingles, it's pretty bad. You always wonder, like, did they get the vaccine? At least that's been on my mind lately. Um, and even with the case of, um, you know, community-acquired pneumonia, someone who's pretty ill, um, were they vaccinated? And I think that's really raising, you know, raising the bar that we need to really have these discussions uh, wherever we can have them. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, we know there's going to be breakthrough infections, and we've seen that. A recent CDC um, report looked at over 5,800 episodes of breakthrough infections out of 77 million-plus vaccinated. And we knew this was going to happen, and there were deaths, of course. Um, but when you look at the numbers and the statistics behind that, it's still very impressive of what we're seeing. Um, there's no question. And that kind of leads me into the fact that, you know, we're in, a, in the midst of a pause right now um, with the J&J &J vaccine um, and how that has affected the degree of vaccine hesitancy and what we're seeing. And I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a really tough question. This is, a, this is the double-edged sword, right? Because you don't want to be viewed as being reckless. Right, you don't want to be accused of well, you were still vaccinating while we had these reports. So they took this, you know, state the, the FDA and the CDC took this stance of out of an abundance of caution, they were going to pause while they examined data. Um, but when you look at the data, um, what they're looking at, the numbers that they're looking at are so small. You know, we're talking about six cases out of almost seven million doses, and if you just limit it to women of childbearing age, it's still uh, six cases out of millions of doses given. Um, these are really small numbers. I think that unfortunately it it serves as armament for um, for the anti-vax movement and for vaccine hesitancy. But really, what it is is showing that we take even small risks very, very seriously. And I, no one is arguing on the vaccine advocacy side that you should just blindly accept vaccines. No one is saying that. We're saying right. that I we're saying that if you look at the data and you look at the risk of the disease, and you look at the risk of the vaccine, you will be overwhelmingly in favor of the vaccine because the risks are minimized. And in cases where the risk doesn't get minimized, we don't really offer that vaccine. You know, Nobody talks about the anthrax vaccine outside of the military because it's not a very good vaccine. Um, and so it's not offered. And that, that is part of, I think, the, the discourse that happens in science and translating that into to the lay public is one of our challenges. Absolutely. You know, I think we look back to other vaccines that have been pulled from the market. The rotavirus vaccine was taken off, you know, 
relatively quickly after, um, you know, the issues of interception arose. But, you know, again, we're doing our due diligence. The FDA and the CDC are looking at this carefully. Um, I don't think we should interpret this long, you know, prolonged pause as a reason to in any way have the public react negatively. But the reality is a lot of people are, and so we have to quell that. And I think that, you know, physicians, other healthcare providers need to really step in and try to, you know, continue the messaging that we are on course, that, you know, we will do based on what the recommendations are from the committee, but we're doing our due diligence. Right. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, you know, the worst case scenario for me is that they would find that this uh, this vaccine does cause in, in a certain age group in women um, a, a slightly elevated risk. And they may suggest that women uh, defer to one of the mRNA vaccines, which hasn't shown that that complication. I think one of the reasons why we can be cautious is because we have three FDA-approved vaccines under emergency use authorization. So we we have the ability to choose, pick and choose how we distribute those vaccines. And if there's a way to do it that gets people vaccinated as quickly as possible, but also minimizes whatever minuscule risks there are, then we should take that opportunity. Absolutely. Um, and I wanted to move into the idea of um, vaccine passports. I had a friend the other day that was saying that this is something that we definitely should do. And you know, obviously, the, all the vaccines are still under EUA category. They're not formally approved yet. So, you know, mo moving to that next step and making, you know, the vaccine passport part of our everyday life is fraught with um, privacy issues. Clearly, there's no question that that comes up. And, you know, do you want the government, I guess some people feeling that you want the government intruding into your life to know what your vaccination status is. And they'll say, what's next? And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the idea that vaccination um, passports are, are a novel idea is really a falsehood. You know, we've needed to carry um, the WHO yellow cards for yellow fever when traveling internationally. We've had to show proof of vaccination to enroll our children in school. I mean, this is not a new concept. I think it's taking this concept to the to the next level in terms of really making sure that the way that we show proof of vaccination is secure, that there aren't fraudulent vaccine cards out there. And remember, the goal is to keep everyone safe, right? And, and you know, the same way you have the individual right to not get vaccinated. But remember, the moment you step off of your property and you enter into society, there are rules. And the rules are determined to protect not only you, but that make sure that your choices aren't harmful to other people. And that really is where we get into this kind of tension between individual liberty and the role of a society. And so, you know, the same way that, you know, you can drive a car on your property, you don't have to register it, you don't have to inspect it. But the moment it enters a public road, um, you have to observe the rules of the road, you have to have it inspected and, and insured and kind of all the things that we that we uh, we do to make sure that the public is safe. And I, I you know, we can't really distinguish between that and getting vaccinated, it really is not a choice that just is individual. I think that the argument would hold water if there was no repercussion on the rest of society. But we've seen with measles outbreaks in this country, we've seen it with polio in the past, um, a lack of vaccination has a very large effect on your neighbors and the, the other members of society that you live with. And so, you know, the, in order to use public services that are taxpayer funded, I don't think it's unreasonable to make sure that people that do that are are, are not endangering people around them. And there's no question. I, I, I agree with you. Vaccine refusal will really come at a cost and it's going to impact all of us. You know, people who refuse to get a COVID vaccine will ultimately lead to downstream higher health costs for all of us. And that will lead to, you know, significantly higher pockets of infection, 
more variance. And I think that the downstream effects of this are, are huge. This was actually laid out in a recent Atlantic article about 10 days ago, um, pretty eloquently by Edward Devere. And I think it's, it's a good read. And I think it really takes a good look at things. Um, talks about Jay Inslee a little bit and how his thoughts on this um, are sort of helping to guide, you know, a mantra in Seattle and to help, you know, sort of have this sense that everyone should look out for one another and that we have to, you know, really have that compassionate effect. And that's even seen in New Zealand where you look at, you know, sort of a mindset where citizens want to take care of one another and they feel that it's their responsibility to get vaccinated. And so, you know, raising that concern that you're not just helping yourself, but you're helping your fellow man. And that really has, a, you know, a big, big effect. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think it's all about framing it because I, I think that Americans don't respond very well to the government wants you to do this and you have to do it. But we respond very well to, hey, to keep your community safe and to make sure the elderly in your community aren't at risk of, of dying um, people would step up and help their neighbors all the time. I mean, this is this is something where you know community is is no less valuable in American society than in any other society. And I think if we, uh, you know, hit those points, I think that's the way to overcome this uh, kind of uh, feeling of, of of just pushing against a government mandate. It's not Absolutely. just we don't do it because the government mandates it. We do it because it's the it's the neighborly thing to do, and it's the way to keep our communities and our kids and our uh, and our parents all safe. And, um, you know, I, I think that's where we're going to win. Um, I think the mandate is is going to be maybe a necessary part of, of standing this up. But, you know, one other, one other point I'll make, this is the only time where, where the results of vaccination and the effect of vaccination are going to be so profoundly felt by my generation. I mean, we didn't, you know, I didn't live through polio um, and certainly I didn't live through pandemic flu um, other than H1N1, uh, which right. wasn't really at, to the same level of effect. But, you know, we have over 500,000 Americans dead from this virus. And the vaccine is the way out of this. And that's that's just, that's indisputable. Absolutely. Um, and that really kind of brings us to the, the concept of herd immunity and when we're going to get there. And we should know that herd immunity isn't a light switch. It's not that it happens and then, you know, we're there. But it's it's a gradual effect. doesn't mean that we, you know, stop taking precautions. Um, you know, stop wearing masks, but it certainly has an effect that we're looking for um, to help, as you say, um, quell the effects of the pandemic and hopefully lead us out of this. Uh, but it's going to be some time, you know, but there have been estimates that, you know, we could be out of this uh, sort of the, the main danger phase by early fall, late summer by achieving herd immunity. But uh, why don't I, you know, get your thoughts? Are we kind of almost there or are we really kind of a ways off at the rate we're vaccinating? I think we're still a ways off. Um, I, I think that we are going to see um, what I'm calling kind of micro herd immunity, where you're going to see communities and pockets of communities and social circles where all the adults are vaccinated or all the, you know, all, kids are 16 and up and, and adults are vaccinated. And I think um, you know, we are going to be able to relax some of our social distancing measures, and we've already seen indications from the CDC in small groups, indoors, you know, not in public, that, that, that that's going to happen um, based on their guidance. But the idea that, you know, the public is going to be over this um, by this summer, I think, is, is um, a little bit of false hope. But I do think I do see life getting much better in the second half of 2021 and the instances where you're going to need to completely social distance and wear a mask be fewer and fewer. Um, but you're right. It's not a light switch. We're not going to just go back to, you know, pre-COVID. Uh, and actually, there was a great Atlantic article, and I don't remember the author, but uh, on um, on uh, COVID-21 
and right. how, you know, COVID may become this just, you know, a nuisance, you know, and it, it may become this, uh, this seasonal nuisance that, uh, you know, certainly doesn't kill a half a million people in a year, but, but, um, uh, but, but may still kind of be a part of our life in a consideration. And that um, becomes a manageable problem for society. Remember, this is, this has been a, an economic catastrophe for many Americans. And I think being able to, to see the light, even if it's a, you know, complex light at the end of the tunnel is a, is a very important step. Absolutely. And I guess one thing that I read that sort of struck me recently was that 30% of Americans, and this was a recent uh, piece of data, will refuse to get the vaccine. So knowing that we can only vaccinate at most 70% of the population, um, you know, that's a concern I have. And I think that we will have pockets of infection. And it's going to be the case maybe years from now where a patient will show up suddenly with a fever and respiratory distress. And could this be COVID? And I think that's a reality we're going to really be living in. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I think, I hope that, you know, the, the surveys, I hope that people are bolder and more vaccine hesitant on surveys as compared to when they're talking with their close family and talking with their doctors. I do think those conversations are different. So I do think that we probably will see less vaccine hesitancy than we are projecting. Um, but I, I certainly think that it is um, it is going to be a problem, and I think that I still engage with people on a regular basis that that believe that COVID's a hoax and that we're inflating the you know the death statistics. And I you know it's it's really I I reason with people up until a point, um, but you know there are a smaller much smaller percentage of people that are just convinced that um, I you know I'm I have a financial incentive to to lie to them or. Or, or some other kind of, you know, kind of delusional thought. And that's harder to overcome. Like I said, though, I think it's a smaller, much smaller percentage. Absolutely. Speaking of um, denying COVID, Ted Nugent, in fact, today just tested positive um, for the virus after calling COVID-19 a hoax. So, you know, he downplayed the pandemic the whole time, as well as, as, well as mitigation efforts. Um, and, as, and as recently as last week, even after, you know, he had been questioned about, you know, safety, about risk of getting it, he really continued to downplay it. So, you know, here you are having someone, you know, a past rock and roll star who lives, I'm pretty sure, pretty, you know, wildly in life still, um, you know, just flouting the, the existence of, of the actual virus and, and people listening to this and propagating this on social media. So I think, you know, this is an example of what people really need to see that, you know, the people who flout it and then get sick, these are living examples of people that could die. Yeah. I hope that people learn from that lesson and learn that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's all, it's all theoretical and a political statement until you, until you get it. And then you're, you know, staring at your own mortality and things get really real really quickly. And, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I, I hope that those stories are enough to kind of sway people that are on the fence. I think there's two groups of people. Generally, there's people that are, you know, re reading conspiracy theories all the time. And like I said, are a smaller percentage. And then there are really people that just need a, a conversation with their doctor before they have this vaccine. They're just a little nervous. They hear emergency use authorization. They want to understand what that means. They want to understand what the real data is. And hopefully after a discussion with their doctor or, or other provider, they're going to, you know, I think have some of their worries set aside and and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get vaccinated. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, the fact that is that the mRNA vaccines were in development for at least two decades, and the technology behind them um, was well-established. And so here they are, they could really be pulled off the shelf and they could be used quickly and scaled up. And I think that really is what we should take away and tell people, you know, in an educated way that this is not just invented a month ago. This has been around for decades and now we're pulling it off the shelf. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, there's very few um, things that, ru- that that get rushed through, even under an emergency use. I mean, there's still an enormous number of studies. There's you know tens of thousands of people enrolled. Um, you know, there, there's, there's lots of data that we get to look at before making a decision on this. And I think the one thing that people don't understand is, you know, this, this operation warp speed, really what it did was give people, give companies unprecedented access to the FDA and get, get the FDA unilaterally focused on moving one type of vaccine, one product through using all of the resources of the agency. And that really is what sped this up. And so one of the things that I think coming out of COVID we're going to have to think about is when we have these vaccines in development, since the FDA has now proven that it's capable of moving this quickly, you know, why are there four-year delays um, in, in other vaccine development? And I think that's going to be something kind of like work from home, where is it you're not really going to be able to roll back from that. That's kind of a, you've, you've opened the door. And, uh, and now we know that we can do things, uh, you know, expeditiously. Yeah, absolutely. And looking at HIV now, maybe there may be a role that this technology can help sort of accelerate um, the pace of, you know, if we can achieve vaccination. There's been some stops and starts, obviously, with HIV vaccines, but uh, maybe this is what we needed to sort of um, push the envelope. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things in, in development that are exciting. You know, there's a, I was just reading an article on the universal flu vaccine, which has had good preliminary data. So, you know, the idea that you get one flu shot and then you don't need a you don't need a seasonal shot. It kind of protects you against all variants of flu. And you know, there's a, there's talk of a universal coronavirus vaccine. Um, and so that you know that those are exciting things. The idea that you wouldn't need a booster. And this is all coming from you know vaccine development with this mRNA technology. And so I think um, I think there's exciting things ahead. Um, and I think that it needs to be presented to the public honestly, but with with the with the data trying to dispel as many myths as possible, um, so that people uh, feel comfortable. Absolutely. I want to thank you, Eric. This has been a really informative discussion and I hope our audience can take away the key points that vaccine uh, hesitancy involves and going forward to hopefully we can battle this and beat this once and for all. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think it's important. You know, I think conversations are important. Um, Presenting honest data um, is, is, is super important. Remembering that vaccine passports are not a new new thing. This is not something that's new. Um, this is something we've used for generations, and um, and just looking at the the real effect. This is the, one of the first times we're going to get to see the real effect of a vaccine um, in my lifetime, at least, on on a disease that's killing hundreds of thousands of people and millions of people worldwide. And I'm really excited to see uh, you know the reduction in, in in deaths and hospitalizations as a result of widespread vaccination. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think you know. Um... Saw a patient the other day, and he kept saying, when are we going to be out of this? And I said, we're going to be out of this when we all work together and that the country's unified. And he said, well, that's going to be a long time. But I said, well, we can't ever stop trying. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing else we can do. All right. Well, thank you again. Really appreciate your time. Uh, Really informative discussion. Same here. Thanks for having me. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash vaccine two. For all the episodes in this series, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash immunization. Thank you for joining us today.